Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 60, Bloody Mary. First off, I will be taking one of my regular hiatuses after this episode. As usual, I will spend my hiatus doing more research and background reading to make the next batch of episodes as good as possible. I have already begun working on them, and I am excited about what is on the horizon. Secondly, while on hiatus, I'm going to try to get out some interim supplemental episodes, but right now I can't promise them or give you any sort of timeline. Keep your eye on the feed, though. My hiatus will go through July, and you will start to see new episodes in August. If you haven't already, make sure you follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram, so you can stay in the loop. But before my hiatus, I bring you this story. It's a special story. You know the story. In fact, it is safe to say that most people know the story. It is a story about what you did, or may have done, or will do. You walk alone into a dark bathroom, carrying a candle. You place the candle on the sink or the counter, and then you close your eyes. You turn around three times, and with each revolution, you say the words, Bloody Mary. When you are done, you open your eyes and look into the mirror, and there you see her, a woman covered in blood, staring back at you. She reaches out with her hand, one sharpened fingernail moving towards your face. If she manages to cut or mark you, you will be cursed, and for the rest of your life, every time you look into a mirror, you will see her looking back out at you. Ah, but of course, you are now talking to your podcast player, talking about how this Matt the Ghostthropologist guy has got it all wrong. Well, maybe not all wrong, but he's wrong on the important details. You heard it differently. Maybe you heard that you don't do this alone, but instead, you do it with friends. Oh, and why would Matt the Ghostthropologist know about this? Everyone knows that Mary only comes to girls who summon her, and that boys must go and find their own spirits to contact. Except, of course, you may have heard about that one boy who lived down the street and managed to make contact with Mary. And, of course, he was never quite the same afterwards. Maybe you heard that you don't need a candle, that a flashlight will do. Maybe you heard that, instead, you need the room completely dark and that Bloody Mary will fill the mirror itself with a dim light. Maybe you heard that it can't be just any bathroom, but that it must be the bathroom at your school, or in the local YMCA, or at your church. That is the only room on earth where you can summon the spirit, nowhere else. Maybe you heard that it doesn't need to be a bathroom at all. It can be any room. Bloody Mary doesn't discriminate, so long as the room has a mirror. But then, of course... You also heard that it does have to be a bathroom because you have to flush the toilet when you are done to close out the ritual or else Bloody Mary will follow you. No, 
It has to be a public bathroom with multiple toilets and they all have to be flushed. Or maybe it's just one particular stall that needs to be flushed. Maybe you should flush them all just to be safe. And did the water in that one toilet turn blood red? Maybe you heard that the mirror isn't where you see Bloody Mary, but instead you must fill the sink with water and look into that. Or in many cases, you have heard that she appears in the water within the bathroom's toilet and you must place three candles in a triangle pattern on the toilet seat. Maybe you heard that she won't appear in a reflection at all, but that carrying out the ritual summons her, and then she will rise elsewhere and enter the room in due time. Perhaps you were baffled that I would say she might cut and mark you when everyone knows that she will, in fact, use a knife to stab or maybe even decapitate you, or that she will reach through the mirror and pull you back with her, possibly to some shadowy mirror world or possibly to hell itself. But then, no you think, he's got it all wrong again. If you don't get out of the room before Bloody Mary appears, you will be transformed into Bloody Mary and be trapped in the mirror. Or maybe you were thinking about how thoroughly confused I am. Mary is a woman who lost her baby, and when you summon her, you also summon the baby. And if you hold your hands out, you will feel, but not see, body of the dead infant in your hands. And really, what is this business about repeating the name Bloody Mary anyway? Everyone knows that you have to speak a rhyme in order to summon her. No self-respecting spirit is going to come just because you repeated her name three times or, depending on what you have heard, 47 times or 100 times. Also, what is this nonsense about Mary being violent? Bloody Mary may look frightening, but she is a boon to girls and young women who summon her, and she will do you no harm but will instead answer questions put to her, providing you with knowledge only available to the spirits. But that's not quite right either. She will not answer questions, but will instead take violent revenge on anyone you wish her to. Except, of course, Bloody Mary isn't a ghost, but a demon. Indeed, she is the wife, or possibly the daughter, of Satan himself. And she may do you harm, just as some stories say. Her potential for violence is unlimited, and if she does violence on your behalf, she will eventually extract a price from you. She may also decide to answer your questions, but if she does answer questions, her answers will be literally true, but phrased to cause you to draw the wrong, always harmful conclusion. But no, Bloody Mary is a ghost. She is, in fact, the ghost of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was decapitated, and when you see her, she will be carrying her head in one hand and a knife with which she will try to take your head in another. Strangely, she seems rarely to be said to be the ghost of Mary Tudor, who was, historically, actually called Bloody Mary. But what is this talk of queens? Mary was a simple woman who lost her children either due to neglect or at her own hands and is now fated to never find rest. Or perhaps you heard that she was an orphan who lived at the edge of town, and when the townspeople would tell her to leave wherever she happened to be, she would show them her pocket mirror and tell them that if they gazed into it, they would see their horrors. Maybe Mary went missing and was eventually found dead and covered in blood with her eyes gouged out. Maybe she was executed by an angry mob or burned as a witch. Whatever happened, the fate was not a pleasant one. And whether she is a boon or a torment to those who summon her back to this plane, she is herself damned and cursed to haunt mirrors when called upon. But 
Really, the biggest error in this podcast is the name. It's not Bloody Mary. That's just something you would order at a bar. No, the spirit is named Mary Worth. Or maybe it's Mary Wales? Well, the Mary part is wrong, you see. It's actually Bloody Molly or Molly Worth or Molly Wales. No, no, it's not Mary or Molly. It's Hanako-san. No, that's nonsense. It's the white lady or the green lady or the gray lady. It's Black Aggie, as everyone knows. Well, of course, those of you from Robertson County, Tennessee, know that all of this is wrong, and it is, in fact, the Bell Witch, who has now stopped irritating Bell family descendants and is appearing in mirrors to torment adolescents foolish enough to call upon her. But, of course, Matt does his research. He wouldn't give you the wrong story, would he? He's way too broke and, let's face it, not nearly charismatic enough to be the shell of some nefarious conspiracy to hide the truth. So, what gives? Could it be that this is one of the most widespread bits of ghost lore worldwide? Might there simply be too many variations to catalog them all? Well, yes. Bloody Mary, a.k.a. Mary Worth, a.k.a. Mary Wales, a.k.a. The White Lady, a.k.a. Hanako-san, a.k.a. The Toilet Ghost, a.k.a. Black Aggie, etc., etc., is an extraordinarily widespread tale. It is primarily girls who summon her, though some variations don't make gender distinctions and who might be foolish enough to attempt the ritual. And generally, the stories do say that it is foolish to call upon her, although some versions say that she will do something in return, such as answering questions or wreaking vengeance upon those who have wronged you. There are a few elements that are stable. That is, every version has the majority, but not necessarily all, of the following items. The ritual requires a reflective surface, usually a mirror, but water often suffices. The ritual takes place indoors, usually in a bathroom, but other rooms with a reflective surface will work. The ghost will either be seen on a reflective surface or will arrive in the room and will be visible. The ritual must be performed in low light, such as you might get from a candle or small flashlight, or in complete darkness. The ritual requires that the participants recite a chant, sometimes just the name repeated a given number of times, or else recite a rhyme. The ritual is carried out by adolescent and pre-adolescent girls. Blood is in some way present, either in the name of the ghost, or the ghost is covered in blood, or blood will appear. Again, in your local version, a couple of these items may be missing, but most of them will be present. That is, after all, what makes it a Bloody Mary story. Commentary. The Bloody Mary story, wherein a group of adolescents, usually girls, summon a spirit through a ritual involving a reflective surface and or a bathroom, is one of the most widespread ghost stories on Earth. It is documented in the Americas, Asia, Europe, Australia, and Africa. Although this story did not get attention from folklorists until the 1970s, since then it has been thoroughly documented, examined, dissected, and interpreted by folklorists, sociologists, and anthropologists. With many stories, I have put in a lot of work to find any useful sources, but with this one, I had to pick a point where I had done enough research and had to stop myself from pursuing it further, as I could easily have spent years reading nothing but academic papers on the subject, not to mention the many articles, books, films, and videos made for the general public. 
I tried to stop when I found that I was beginning to get mostly redundant information, but it is inevitable that I will have missed something simply because there is simply so much. Trying to gather useful information on Bloody Mary is a bit like trying to take a quick sip of water from a fire hose. So, if I leave out some piece of information or some article or paper that you were hoping I would include, it's simply because, at some point, I had to stop researching and start writing. One of the first things to note is that, as shown by the rather odd storytelling in the first part of this episode, there are many, many variations on the Bloody Mary story. A few are outliers that seem to share little with the primary story other than the name of the ghost. For example, I came across one vanishing hitchhiker story in which the hitchhiker ghost was known as Bloody Mary, and she leaves a pool of blood in the car when she vanishes, rather than a pool of water, article of clothing, or other more typical vanishing hitchhiker mementos. I also found one wherein a chain email is sent out to school children, insisting that they must forward the email to a large number of others, or Bloody Mary will come for them. However, the overwhelming majority share the traits that I listed earlier in this episode and are more of an invitation to enact the summoning ritual than anything else, which doesn't mean that the story isn't told as a story. I know more people who have told the story of Bloody Mary than would be willing to try to summon her, but the point, in the end, is that someone, even if not the teller, needs to perform the ritual. That said, even with the definite and clear similarities between most Bloody Mary stories, there is a lot of variation. For one thing, the name seems to be stable within regions, but varies tremendously between them. In the United States, the most common version of the name is Mary, usually Bloody Mary, but sometimes it may be Maryworth, Mary Wales, or some other version of Mary. When it is not Mary, it is usually a name closely associated with Mary, such as Maria, which is the Romance language equivalent of Mary, or Molly, which is another English language variant of the name derived originally from Mary. Folklorist Alan Dundies argues that this is due to the name Mary being tied to the Virgin Mary, which he finds significant, but I will get to Dundas's interpretation of the story a bit later. Mark Armitage, a British expert in children's play habits, found while working as a consultant for schools in the UK, that most of the schools he visited had a variation of the Bloody Mary story associated with one of their bathrooms. However, he found that while the name Mary was sometimes associated with these ghosts, the more common name was the White Lady, with another common variation being the Green Lady. Ghosts described as the pick-a-color lady, with White Lady and Grey Lady likely being the most common, are often found in Anglophone folklore, but especially prevalent in the British Isles. So this may be a case of a local ghost name being assigned to the spirit summoned through the ritual. In a similar development, while some variation on Mary is the most common name in the United States, in parts of Tennessee, the spirit is known as the Bell Witch or Kate Bats, tying it into a well-known poltergeist story that will probably be the subject of a future ghostropology episode. In a similar manner, the Japanese equivalent is often called Hanako-san, which translates into Flower Girl, and ties in with another regional ghost story. Similarly, other versions throughout Europe either change Mary to the local equivalent, such as Marie or Maria, or else assign a different name altogether based on a local tradition. Just as the name changes, so do the contents of the ritual. 
While the reflective surface is not always present, indeed some Eastern European variations eliminate it altogether, it is a typical element. Cases where it is missing are the exception. Usually the reflective surface is a mirror, but sometimes it is water, either water poured into a sink or bowl, or more often as this ritual usually takes place in a bathroom, in a toilet. What is seen also varies. Typically it is the face of a ghost, demon, or witch in the reflection, usually covered in blood or with a bloody wound. Sometimes no face is said to appear, but instead the reflective surface will become covered in blood. In cases where the reflection is said to appear in the water of the toilet, the toilet is often said to become filled with blood rather than water. And if that makes you start having Freudian thoughts, hold tight. There will be more on that in a bit. But again, the spirit doesn't always appear in a reflection. Mark Armitage identified versions where the ritual must be carried out in a bathroom, but it summons a ghost who will appear elsewhere and then come into the bathroom. In some versions, the spirit will appear in the mirror or reflective surface. In others, the spirit will manifest elsewhere in the room. Again, Armitage identified variants where the spirit will appear in a particular stall within the school's bathroom. And there's a wide range of variations in the necessary light level. Sometimes the location has to be completely dark. Other times, a small amount of light is needed. I did not find any examples where the room can be well lit. And there are many, many variations on the origin of Bloody Mary. Often, as was the case with the version that I heard when I was a kid, she is a demon or other evil spirit of unknown origin, often the wife or daughter of Satan. There are versions in which she was a social outcast of some sort who was treated poorly by the community, is found dead, and then proceeds to haunt people through mirrors. One Eastern European account, interestingly, claims that she is the wife of a U.S. Civil War soldier who kills her children when she can't feed them and is later killed by her husband when he returns from the war, either for her crimes or because he doesn't recognize her and thinks she's a thief in the house. In many variations, she is said to be Mary Stewart, Queen of Scots, who was decapitated, and in many of these versions, she will try to decapitate anyone foolish enough to summon her. Eastern European versions tend to tie her to an actual historical figure, so one might summon Elizabeth Bathory rather than Bloody Mary using the ritual. But interestingly, the only versions I have found that tie Bloody Mary to 16th century English Queen Mary Tudor, who was actually historically known as Bloody Mary, are Eastern European and not British. In other locations, Bloody Mary takes on elements of the La Llorona story, with Mary having lost or sometimes having killed her children. In these variations, you might summon her by stating that you have her baby or that you killed her baby, and a subset of these versions of the story state that her dead baby will appear in your hands if you cup them in front of the mirror while summoning her. Indeed, in the southwestern United States and parts of Latin America, the Bloody Mary ritual has merged with the La Llorona story completely, resulting in a backstory for Mary in which she has either killed her children or somehow allowed the death of her children, and her ghost has been driven mad with grief. Just as the name, conditions of summoning, and nature of the apparition are variable, so are the claimed results. In some variations, you will simply see a scary spirit appear in the mirror, but no harm will come to you. In others, she may pull you into the mirror and or pull you to hell. In still others, she will curse you, or most dramatically of all, there are some versions where she will kill you where you stand. 
But then there are the helpful iterations where she will do some task for you or truthfully answer questions posed to her. Peter Janicek documents the occurrence of Bloody Mary-type legends in Eastern Europe and notes that they began to appear in the former Soviet bloc countries in the 1980s and 1990s as these nations became more open to Western Europe and the U.S. and as expatriates returned. Further, Janicek observes that tales of Bloody Mary often merged with local traditions of adolescent ghost summoning. These previous traditions included the summoning of the spirits of historical figures, or figures thought to be historical even if they didn't really exist. This seems to be the reason why Mary Tudor is sometimes cited as the Bloody Mary summoned in Eastern Europe, even if she is rarely, if ever, cited outside in Western Europe, the historic context in which she actually lived. It's not simply that there was a historical figure known as Bloody Mary, but that some local traditions required that the summoned ghost be a historical figure rather than an unknown person. In Russia, there was a pre-existing tradition of summoning a spirit known as the Queen of Spades, and Bloody Mary has been brought into the legend of this figure as the little sister of the Queen of Spades. Interestingly, in many Eastern European examples that Janacek cites, mirrors are not used, and the setting is often outdoors, typically at a summer camp or similar setting, where children had a degree of freedom not often allowed at home. Janacek also reports that some local traditions in Eastern Europe involve what is known as ethical inversion, where the ghost of a good person will do evil if summoned, and the ghost of an evil person will do good when summoned. Now, this is not universal in Eastern Europe, and there are certainly local traditions where an evil person has an evil ghost and a good person has a good ghost. But in locations where ethical inversion is the norm, it can lead to strange situations where summoning the ghost of a saint may be hazardous, while summoning the ghost of, say, Adolf Hitler is perfectly safe. This leads to some Czech variations of the Bloody Mary ritual that sound rather odd to outsiders. Janacek observes that the story of Bloody Mary is often told in the Czech Republic, but that the rituals usually focus on historical figures or regional ghost stories. Now, this does lead to a question. Are these Bloody Mary rituals if you were calling up someone who is not Bloody Mary, and the rituals are, at least in large part, derived from local traditions? The answer is that I don't know. They are at least Bloody Mary adjacent. Those from the former Soviet bloc appear to have developed in parallel with the Bloody Mary story, but have, since the 1990s, been taking on elements of Bloody Mary and therefore may have created hybrids out of compatible stories, what Janacek terms syncretisms. In Japan, there is the story of Hanako-san, which roughly translates into flower girl. She is said to be a ghost found in the girls' bathrooms of school buildings and is a little girl with an out-of-date bob haircut wearing a 1940s-era red dress. According to the version that I have read, though I do not doubt that there are many other variations, you approach the third stall in the third-floor girls' bathroom. I am guessing it will be a different bathroom in schools without three stories and knock on it, asking, Is Hanako here? If she answers, then... Depending on the version of the story you have heard, opening the door may reveal the little girl standing in the stall, or a bloody red hand might reach out of the toilet and pull you in, or you might find yourself facing a three-headed lizard that will eat you, or Hanako might turn you into a lizard, pick you up, and then eat you. This story reportedly first appeared in the 1950s, and Hanako is said to have died during World War II, 
possibly as a result of the Allied bombings, though there are a number of striking differences from most modern American Bloody Mary stories. The story is, with the exception of the ghost being a little girl and the business with the lizard, nearly identical to multiple British variations. Some of the sources I found suggest that this is a Japanese story without American influence, but given the similarities, I'm guessing that this is another case of syncretism between the American Bloody Mary and local traditions. So there are a lot of variations, and they come from all over the world. I could go on about this for a while, but I think I have demonstrated my point. Now, let's ask the question, how old is the legend of Bloody Mary, and where does it come from? Most sources that I have found state that Bloody Mary evolved out of mirror divination rituals that were common in Europe for centuries. Some sources simply assert it, and others discuss similarities between these divination rituals and the Bloody Mary rituals. But there is never a clear link. Now, don't get me wrong, I agree with the general consensus that Bloody Mary comes from these early practices. But I think it's important to be clear that this is something based on what appears likely we don't actually have a clear bridge between the mirror rituals and Bloody Mary other than their similarities. These mirror rituals involve someone, usually a girl or a young woman, looking into a mirror or other reflective surface in low light, often by candlelight. The person conducting the ritual would see some indication of the future in the mirror. By the late 19th and early 20th centuries, this had evolved into a common ritual where, on Halloween night, a girl or a young woman would look into the mirror by candlelight, often after performing a set of simple tasks such as closing her eyes, turning around, reciting a rhyme, phrase, or chant, and so on. After a few minutes, she would see the face of her future husband or future children in the mirror. The ritual was popular enough in the Americas that there were even Halloween greeting cards printed showing a woman engaged in the ritual. Some of the mirror divination folklore itself contains seeds for something more frightening. Some versions tell that if a woman is to die before she marries or has children, then she will see a skeleton in the mirror, or she will see herself and the manner of her death. Not Bloody Mary, but pretty horrific, and it is easy to see how that could, over time, drift into Bloody Mary. Then again, 19th and early 20th century German folklorists gathered stories from Eastern Europe pertaining to the use of the mirror in divining rituals to identify witches, and some of the accompanying folktales stated that anyone who looked into the mirror at night risked seeing the devil. Given the mix of Europeans who came to the Americas at the same time that these stories were being told in Eastern Europe, it is entirely possible that this story made its way to the U.S. and was then incorporated into the young women's divining game or ritual, potentially creating a proto-Bloody Mary legend. Then there's the specific religious context of the Americas. Although spiritualism became quite popular here, it always had its detractors. Among them was a segment of the Christian clergy who saw all forms of spiritualism as necromancy and demonic. Although some of this is rooted in older European religious traditions, after all, movements like the Witch Scare started in Europe, it further developed and took on a particular flavor in the Americas in the 19th century through the rise of a number of offshoot and fundamentalist Christian sects, and further through the formation of the religious right which, starting in the mid-20th century, further pushed a reactionary response to non-Christian ritual. 
While the majority of American Christian sects are far less reactionary and far more tolerant than their reputations would indicate, and in my experience, most Christians regard divination games and the like as silly rather than evil, among the most vocal and outspoken Christians, among the most vocal and outspoken Christians are a minority who are ready and eager to denounce a large range of activities, beliefs, and ideas as being not only non-Christian, but outright demonic. Even if most American Christians don't share these views, they are trumpeted often enough that they work their way into the public consciousness. In that setting, one doesn't need Eastern European mirror folktales to develop a story of something evil coming through the mirror divination rituals. In fact, it would be somewhat surprising if otherwise inoffensive fortune-telling rituals that are, nonetheless, on the margins of respectability, didn't pick up some demonic baggage. Of course, none of these things are mutually exclusive. The rise of Bloody Mary could be a mix of all of them. It could also have arisen independently of these various elements, and it might not have even grown from the mere divination rituals. However, as summarized by Mark Armitage, the earliest known versions of Bloody Mary have her at least as likely to answer questions as to frighten the summoner or do them harm, which does suggest a connection to the mirror ritual. Most reliable information suggests that the more or less modern Bloody Mary story appeared in the 1950s, most likely in the United States. Although variations also appeared in Sweden and the UK in the 1950s, informants in both locations identified it as an American story, which might push back the U.S. origination of the tradition to the 1940s. In many of these locations, the story originally appears as Bloody Mary or some variation thereof, but then takes on a local name. The story of Hanako-san likewise appears in the 1950s, and while some of the sources suggest that it may have developed independently of the Bloody Mary story, its similarities to Bloody Mary and the time of its appearance suggest another possibility to me. Strangely, one of the sources I consulted provided evidence suggesting that the Bloody Mary story was not well known in the Newfoundland province of Canada until the 1970s or 1980s, but that seems to be an outlier. In most U.S. allied countries, it appears in the 1950s. It seems reasonable to surmise that Bloody Mary developed from earlier traditions in the Americas sometime in the first half of the 20th century, most likely in the 1940s or very early 1950s. From there, it spreads to other parts of the world, first being identified in Western Europe and in Japan. Now, I want to be clear. I am not claiming that what follows is a definite source of the Bloody Mary legend. This is just a hypothesis of mine and one that would need to be tested through pretty thorough research before anyone, myself included, should claim that it explains the spread of Bloody Mary and related legends. But it is a possible explanation for the spread of Bloody Mary legends. So my hypothesis is this. Bloody Mary evolved from the earlier mirror divination traditions during the first half of the 20th century and was firmly ensconced in American childhood folklore by the late 1940s or early 1950s. Post-World War II and throughout the Cold War, American military personnel and, importantly, their families were stationed in Europe, especially Western Europe, and Japan, and would therefore have had the opportunity to travel in these areas as well. So my guess is that the children of American soldiers stationed overseas brought this story with them and that it spread from there. Even neutral countries without American bases, such as Sweden, would have received American visitors 
and could have had the stories passed along friend of a friend style from other parts of Europe. This would explain why variations on the story appeared in Western Europe and Japan in the 1950s, but not in the Soviet bloc countries until after restrictions on both travel and media began to relax in the 1980s. Of course, once the internet became the main source of information for the world, the Bloody Mary story spread quickly everywhere. So what do the Bloody Mary legend and ritual mean? In researching this, I've encountered three different, not mutually exclusive, approaches to making sense of Bloody Mary, what I call the explanatory, the narrative, and the functional. The explanatory approach focuses on the result of events that begin with children learning the story of Bloody Mary and culminating in a summoning ritual. This approach tries to get at what is going on when someone summons Bloody Mary, someone who, based on their religious or spiritual views, claims that those who summon Bloody Mary are truly summoning a ghost or a demon, is certainly engaged in an explanatory approach. But there are other, less supernatural explanations. One is that those who claim to see Bloody Mary are simply making it up, and that is almost certainly what happens in some, likely most, cases. However, I recall a night when I was at science camp in fifth grade, and a group of girls went to the bathroom to summon Bloody Mary. Most of them were fine afterwards. But one, a girl named Melanie, was in hysterics and could not be calmed or comforted. Her parents drove several hours that night to pick her up and take her home. And for the next several years, when asked, she would insist that she had seen Bloody Mary. I don't think she was making it up, but I also don't think that she summoned a spirit. Psychologist Giovanni Caputo published the results of an experiment in which he had subjects stare into a mirror in low light and a significant number of them saw their face change into another person or a creature of some sort. This didn't happen in bright lights, which makes sense. In low light, the vision centers of the brain and the eyes have to do more to process an image and keep it stable in the mind. It appears that the illusion of a different face or image is due to a processing error. It is easy to see how this illusion could have given rise to a belief in something frightening looking back at you when you engage in these rituals. This would certainly explain what Melanie and others like her have seen over the years. So it is likely that some of the children who engage in this ritual lie about the results, but it is also likely that at least some of them genuinely see something. But that still leaves open the question of why they are trying to summon Bloody Mary to begin with. And this lack of consideration is why I find a purely explanatory model unsatisfying. Sure, it can explain what happened, but it leaves open the why. For the why, we have to look at the narrative and the functional approaches. In truth, they are both functional in that they seek to explain the function of the ritual, but narrative approaches place more emphasis on the story surrounding the ritual and the potential symbolic nature of elements of the ritual, while the functional focuses more on the setting and social nature of the ritual. The most widely cited narrative example was presented by folklorist Alan Dundas in the 1990s, Dundas took a Freudian psychoanalytic approach, and I know that one segment of the audience is buckling in for what they figure will be some nonsense, and another segment is excited to hear an example of Freudian analysis cracking the mystery. I ask that you hear me out, as both groups are probably in for some disappointment, but, I hope, also some new ways to consider this legend and ritual. Dundas focused on a few specific elements, the imagery of blood, that the ritual typically takes place in the bathroom, and that, in several of the narratives that Dundas collected, toilets must be flushed and, in a few cases, the water in the toilet was said to turn blood red after a successful summoning. 
From these elements, Dundas observed that, according to the information that he had, the rituals were overwhelmingly engaged in by girls in late childhood or early adolescence who lived in a society where open discussion of menstruation was considered taboo, and in a society lacking formal rituals to mark certain coming-of-age events. We know that, in an absence of information, rumors get started, and in places without rituals, rituals are created. From this, he argued that Bloody Mary represented a ritual used to initiate girls and to express fear over menstruation, as well as the challenges of adult womanhood. He points out that most of the elements of legend and ritual, the blood, the toilets, the flushing, were clearly evocative of this central theme. I don't think Dundas was completely correct, and you'll see why shortly, but I also don't think he was necessarily wrong, at least not in all cases. His view that people, including children, would make their own rites of passage in the absence of formal ones is in keeping with the research of the developmental psychologist Eric Erickson and has been used successfully to describe a lot of adolescent folklore and practices. When I have suggested this explanation to people, it is usually met with ridicule, with most people, especially the women I've mentioned it to, stating flatly that they weren't thinking about menstruation when they performed it as children. And fair enough. But the fact is that symbolism is used unconsciously in human activities pretty routinely. Our humor, our art, our religious rituals, and even our language are loaded with symbols that we don't consciously think about, but that do work on us. So it is worth keeping an open mind on this matter. At the same time, Dundas makes some errors and also does a few things in his explanation that are, to put it mildly, stretching his argument a bit thin. His first error is in claiming that the Freudian psychoanalytic explanation accounts for all elements of the Bloody Mary legend. It accounts for most, but not all, of the elements that he identifies in the collection of narratives that he uses. However, there are variations that have nothing to do with blood at all. These are usually not called Bloody Mary, but instead are named various different things. Among the ones I mentioned earlier in this episode are the White Lady and Mary Worth. He places a lot of emphasis on the presence of toilets in the narratives he referenced, as toilets are where people in the West tend to dispose of menstrual blood. But there are many versions of the tale that require a mirror or a bowl of water, not a toilet. Also, while most of the folklorists who have studied this ritual do note that it is primarily adolescent girls who engage in it, there are also many examples of much younger children as well as young adult women or even boys summoning Bloody Mary. So Dundas may be able to explain some of the Bloody Mary legends, but by no means all of them. Moreover, Dundas placed a good deal of emphasis on some dubious things. For example, he cites alternate names for Bloody Mary, Mary Worth and Mary Wales, as indicating that a girl may internalize that her worth comes either from virginity or childbearing, and that she may think of a woman wailing in childbirth. And, well... I think Dundas was a little too proud of his own hypothesis on those points to really think them through. Plus, there are some strange local variations that seem to have a very different significance. For example, in her master's thesis, Laura Winter notes that at her Catholic school, the girls didn't see Bloody Mary as a ghost or demon, but rather as the Virgin Mary, weeping blood for the death of her son, Jesus Christ. While this is an outlier, and I suspect that Dundas, were he still around, would make much over this being the Virgin Mary, it suggests to me that even the name and the imagery can be bent to local context very easily, which suggests that a strict reading of the story as text is going to be of limited value. 
In addition, Winter observes that the age range at which girls participate in Bloody Mary rituals is broad, with many of her informants in eastern Canada starting as young as age six, at which point one would anticipate that most children aren't yet thinking about puberty, with others engaging in it in their early teens after menses has begun, which, again, suggests that different ages would create different contexts and meanings for Bloody Mary. And that takes us to a functional approach, one where we look at the ritual itself and its circumstances to find the meaning. There are many, many different stories explaining why Bloody Mary appears in the mirror, and sometimes there is simply no explanation given. Though the ritual varies significantly, there are clear similarities over time and between locations, with only former Soviet bloc countries really standing out as different in the examples I could find. And again, in those cases, there were already local mirror witch or mirror ghost traditions with which Bloody Mary merged. This suggests that while Dundas may be right, and the narrative behind Mary, as well as the tale of what will be observed if she is summoned, may well hold symbolic value, the ritual itself is the more important aspect of the Bloody Mary phenomenon. This is in keeping with research on teenage legend trips, in which it is found that the stories surrounding the location tend to be of only limited value but the trip to the location is important for a variety of social and developmental reasons. In his examination of British school stories involving Bloody Mary variants, or as he called it more generically, toilet ghost stories, Mark Armitage observed that the ritual was typically engaged in by groups of girls in locations where adult supervision would be absent. The toilet wasn't necessarily a place of symbolic importance, as Dundas had thought, but rather a location of necessity where the girls could engage in the behavior without an adult interfering. This is backed up by observations made by Laura Winter in her 2014 master's thesis on Bloody Mary rituals in Canada, and is consistent with a body of work on teenage legend tripping in which the case is made that the car allows teenagers to escape parental supervision for their legend trip rituals. Of course, children who can't drive need another place to go to escape adult supervision, and the bathroom is one place where that can be guaranteed in most schools and most homes. Armitage acknowledges Dunda's explanation for the popularity of the Bloody Mary ritual, but argues that the ritual seems geared towards creating a safe sense of fear, and narratives surrounding it do not always include the imagery that Dundas found so evocative. Armitage argues that there is a distinct possibility that this ritual serves a developmental purpose in helping children to learn to cope with fear and anxiety generally, but also states that we should be open to the possibility that it is simply a way for children to play with fear, much as teenagers and adults do by watching horror movies. But at the same time, there are many cases documented where Bloody Mary rituals do seem to serve a social or psychological purpose. Indeed, in her thesis, Winter identifies examples of Bloody Mary rituals being used as a form of bullying, wherein some girls use it to reinforce social hierarchies that benefit them by frightening other, usually younger girls. She finds it used as a hazing ritual to initiate new girls into a social group and used as a bonding activity for girls in early adolescence. On this last point, she taps into a body of folklore studies that examines the supernatural play of girls. Both Shari Freed and Elizabeth Tucker have written about the use of occult rituals or games, of which Bloody Mary is certainly a type, as a way for groups of girls to cement their friendships. As for the purpose of the ritual, I rather like a line from Winter's thesis. Quote, In the past, scholars have identified Bloody Mary as a legend, a school children's game, a maturation ritual, and a form of supernatural play. 
As this thesis shows, Bloody Mary is all of those and more. It is a highly dynamic tradition spanning several generations and is found among different folk groups that vary in age, geography, and religion, serving different functions and with slight variations, unquote. So while I think that Dundee's is not completely off the mark with his reading of these stories, I think that he is also myopic in failing to see a bigger context in which Bloody Mary lives and thrives. And Bloody Mary is changing. Winter notes that while in her childhood, Bloody Mary was a girl's activity, her research found that a growing number of boys engage in it now. That is not completely new. My hometown's version allowed that boys could summon Bloody Mary, though I know several girls and no boys who try. And even my mother recalls that the version from her childhood of the 1950s and 1960s allowed for boys to summon Mary. But it is a change as versions of the story that were inclusive of boys seem to be the rarity in narratives collected by folklorists. Winter also observes that Bloody Mary seems to be moving out of mirrors and into electronics, as she encountered an email chain letter that threatened anyone who failed to forward it with a visit from Bloody Mary. And she even encountered a sort of looking glass version in which a child had to write a spell declaring her disbelief in Bloody Mary repetitively in order to keep her in the mirror, rather than engaging in a ritual to let her out. I happened to start reading a book on legend tripping around the same time that I began researching this episode, and this led to some interesting observations. Summoning Bloody Mary certainly seems to count as a legend trip. People going to a specific room or a place that meets a specific requirement and engaging in a ritual as a way of acting out a legend, much like people going to an allegedly haunted bridge to witness a ghost. Bloody Mary is certainly more convenient. It requires only going to a room in your home or, in some versions, a room in a building that you routinely visit. While legend tripping can be engaged in by people of any age and any station in life, it tends to be most common for people who are somewhere between early adolescence and their early 20s, and that certainly tracks with Bloody Mary. Legend tripping typically takes place in an environment where those who engage in the trip have no direct supervision, and by taking place primarily in bathrooms, the Bloody Mary ritual provides children who perform it a location where adults would not be present with them. So, again, that checks out. Further, a lot of folklore studies indicate that childhood and adolescent legend trips are about proving one's bravery or being willing to go along with a strange activity to show a willingness to be a part of the group. And again, the Bloody Mary ritual meets this. But there is a place where Bloody Mary diverges from the classic description of a legend trip. But I suspect that every legend trip story complex diverges on this point, and that Bloody Mary shows the rule, not the exception. The available literature divides the legend trip into two or three parts. First, there is the relaying of the story, often in preparation for going to a place or engaging in an activity, the intention being that this sets the stage for what is to come and conditions people to interpret their experiences in a particular way. Second, there is the experience itself, a visit to a location, engaging in a ritual, or often both. Many folklorists add a third stage wherein the participants share their stories or impressions of the experience that they had, and if an experience was remarkable enough, it may become a part of that group's, and sometimes the community's, ongoing legend. Growing up, I know that everyone I went to school with was aware of the Bloody Mary stories. In talking to other people, I found most of the folks I know who were born in the 1950s or later are aware of the Bloody Mary story. But only a portion of those folks ever participated in a Bloody Mary ritual. Mind you, 
a minority of a large population is still a lot of people, but it is still a minority. In talking with other people, this seems to be the norm. Most folks know the tale, but only a minority have tried to summon Bloody Mary. In doing my research, I found that most of the folklorists who had gathered Bloody Mary stories had informants who had described the ritual, but only a few stated that they had performed it, and many stated clearly that they never had. Typically, the reason for not engaging in it was fear. And over the course of my life, I have often found that this is the case. Everyone knows where the haunted house is, but only a few people visit it. Everyone knows how to speak with spirits using a Ouija board, but only a few people do it. So this gets me thinking that there may be an earlier stage to legend tripping, a stage zero, I suppose you would call it, in which the stories circulate amongst the population, earning fearsome reputations for the people, objects, or places involved, and tempting the minority who, out of curiosity, bravery, or a desire to prove themselves, will go out to face the subject of the legend. Now, I am not a folklorist. And I have no doubt that this is something that folklorists have already considered, and there is likely a term for it. But it still seems important to note that not everyone in the know decides to actually visit a haunted place or engage in a weird ritual. There must be this underlying tradition of lore that inspires people to do these things. And I will again cite Laura Winter, who found that many of the high school students she worked with found it important to share Bloody Mary lore and legends. But these same students had outgrown performing the ritual. This suggests that this can come around full circle. A legend circulates, which inspires a subgroup to try to summon Bloody Mary, who then add their own experiences to the legend. As these children grow, they lose interest in trying to summon Bloody Mary, coming to view that as childish, but continue to circulate the legend, likely exposing younger siblings and other children to it. There is a tendency for folklorists who study legend trips to state that the legend is not the important part, the trip is. And I think, based on the ethnographic work I've read, that this is true for those who engage in legend trips. But there appears to be a larger group of people who will not engage in the trip and for whom the legend is what matters. And people may move between these two groups, the trippers and the non-trippers, over the course of their lives. What's more, the trip likely wouldn't occur if not for the presence of a large number of people who spread the legend. That seems pretty obvious, I know, but I hadn't really given it much thought until I started researching Bloody Mary. And in the end, I think that's the great value of Bloody Mary for those of us who are interested in supernatural folklore. It is so widespread and has so many variations that it serves as something of an ur-example from which we can see things that play out across folklore generally. Bloody Mary is, in many ways, a key to understanding quite a few other ghost stories. I had not anticipated that when I started working on this episode, but it does appear to be the case. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. 
You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!